This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham from New Matilda join me to talk about federal politics. Then, Richard Todd, who is the director and producer of the documentary Dying to Live, joined me in the studio to talk about his film that's now showing at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Dying to Live is about organ and tissue donation in Australia. And then finally, Dr Karen Jones, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Melbourne, joined me in the studio to talk about her upcoming lecture on Wise Trust. What is trust and how do we trust others wisely? And you are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM. This is me, Amy Mullins, back with you. And I'm excited now to be speaking with Ben Eltham about federal politics. Hey there, Ben. Hey, welcome back, Amy. Thank you. I'm very glad to be back. I feel right at home, especially sitting opposite you because this brings back excellent memories. And uh, and I've missed quite a lot since I was away. I do recall um, lying in a hospital bed watching the... Uh, by-election counts on oh, a Saturday gee, that night. that a long time ago. I know, July the something, end of July. July 29, I think. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull looked a little bit second-hand after that episode, didn't he? Yeah, it didn't go well for the Liberal Party, no doubt about it. Uh, to lose or to not win Longman in Queensland, I think, was uh, a significant blow and, you know, it really does throw their re-election chances back into question. A lot of people in the government were looking a lot more confident because Mm. they've had a couple of improving poll positions. They're still not ahead in the polls, but they've slowly improved in in most of the national polls. And of course, there are many marginal seats in Queensland, including Longman. So that uh, a good showing in Longman would have put them, I think, you know, in a confident position coming into the next federal election. Of course, as it turned out, there was a pretty significant swing away from the Liberal Party. Mm. Um, not a huge swing to Labor, to be fair, but um, certainly enough for Labor to pick up that seat or to hold that seat. Um, and, you know, that means big trouble for the coalition if those sort of numbers were to be repeated in a federal election because there's just so many marginal seats up there in Queensland. Yeah, it'd be making a few MPs nervous. Yeah, and then the, if you look over in South Australia at Mayo, Georgina Downer, high-profile candidate, mm. unable to win that seat off the incumbent, Rebecca Sharkey. Uh so, yeah, you know, um, in Tasmania, in Braddon, Labor held Braddon as well. So, yeah, on the whole, um, not a great result for the coalition. Um, they didn't win any seats. Um, you know, the swings weren't that bad. They certainly weren't as bad as, as what people have made them out to be and, and probably about what you'd expect for a, a government now entering into its fourth year in office. Um, but having said that, you know... Um, uh, the government's still behind in the polls um, and it's still in an election-losing position. So th- that's given, I think, a few MPs cause to think coming back to Parliament after the winter recess. Mm. And one of the um, key aspects of their policies has been company tax cuts, which the uh, final tranches, they can't get through the Senate and they're going to try again, aren't they, Ben? I think they are going to try One last go. I I, I really don't understand why. Um, (laughs) Yeah. After Longman, there was talk about just ditching the company tax cuts once and for all. 
It is a bit strange to me why they're continuing on with them. They're not a popular policy. They've never been a popular policy, unlike personal income tax cuts. Mm. Tax cuts to business has never been popular. Um, I guess they're just going to plough ahead because they are, after all, the Liberal Party, the party of capital and of business. And so this is a central plank of their election platform. Uh, Matthias Cormann, the leader in the Senate, is uh, ploughing ahead. I I don't Mm. see how he's got the numbers at this stage, though. Even with the One Nation senators on his side, he still needs extra numbers and he doesn't seem to have them. No, he doesn't. And um, and that reminds me of a certain person who um, was Prime Minister Tony Abbott, uh, who I saw on 7.30 last night. I don't know why he now has a platform on a, um, a TV show like that, but he does. And he's out there talking on behalf of very few colleagues in his party about uh, the National Energy Guarantee, which he said uh, to ram this through the party room tomorrow to try to make us sign up to what is essentially the state Labor Premier's energy policy would be dead wrong. Now, uh, that's a loaded statement, isn't it, Ben? But what part of that is true, if any? Uh, none of it is true, Amy. <laughs> unfortunately, as with so much that comes out of Tony Abbott's mouth, uh, unfortunately, none of that is correct. It's not uh, a Labor state premier's no, policy, No, it is, is not. It? it is Josh Frydenberg, the Liberal Energy Minister's policy, oh, yes. negotiated at length over the last year. Um, I don't know what to say about energy policy in this country. Mm. It really is just a slow-moving train wreck, a bin fire. Choose your disastrous metaphor. Um, you know, the, the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, was the policy that the government came up with after commissioning Chief Scientist Alan Finkel to come up with a policy. Finkel recommended a so-called energy intensity scheme. The government rejected that. Um, of course, the government repealed a perfectly good... Tony Abbott repealed a perfectly good working energy policy system, which was t- Julia Gillard's carbon tax mm. um, a, and an emissions trading scheme that was reducing emissions. Uh, and, um, in fact, of course, energy prices have risen since the repeal of the carbon tax. So we really are in the worst of both worlds. And the, most of the blame has to be sheeted home, I'm afraid, to Tony Abbott and the hardliners on the Liberal backbench who continue to prevent, really hold hostage uh, Australia's energy policy. It's pretty obvious what we need to do in terms of making electricity prices cheaper and reducing emissions. We need to have more renewable energy. Unfortunately, of course, for those in the Liberal Party who don't believe in climate change and for whom climate change has become a kind of emblematic issue, a badge of their conservative um, uh, credentials, really. Um, Mm. So any talk of, of renewable energy, any talk of reducing emissions, any talk of even meeting Australia's commitments to the Paris Climate Change Agreement, which Tony Abbott committed to, didn't uh, read the fine print. Didn't read the fine print as he's admitted. Whoops. Um, as, yeah, which is wholly characteristic, of course, of that politician. Um, you know, any talk of, of, of these international obligations seem to be anathema to Tony Abbott and Erica Betts and the dwindling band of climate uh, revanchists on the Liberal backbench. Mm, and yet they're given so much oxygen. And uh, and obviously we're trying to attempt balance in the media. Um, you know, I see many of these backbenchers, particularly um, the the 
abbotists, I guess, out there. <laughs> abbotistas. Abbotistas. That's, I like it. I like it, Ben. I'm going to stick with that. The abbotistas out there talking about this policy, how electricity prices are, you know, have doubled apparently and that we need to reduce them and that this, uh, this guarantee, which includes uh, renewables, is not going to provide us with enough um, power, available power. I mean, these are the kind of arguments that they're floating and that um, the, the scientists that are purporting to support uh, renewable energy are so-called scientists. I mean, there's a lot of undermining of basic facts and basic kind of evidence that you would assume most people would have a consensus on. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the course for these guys, I mean, they've undermined the climate science for decades now. They're continuing to recycle tired, discredited old talking points. I mean, Tony Abbott was even talking about how carbon dioxide is not a pollutant, you know. I mean, just that's a lie. That's a, that's a, there's no other way to say it. Carbon yeah. dioxide, unfortunately, is a pollutant. It's making the planet warmer, therefore dangerously changing our climate, you know. And, and it's sad that in 2018 we need to keep repeating these very simple notions of atmospheric science. Mm. Uh, but that's where the debate's got to, unfortunately. And, and I do think the media is somewhat to blame by giving oxygen to these people. Uh, but But... The main problem here is not the media. The main problem here is within the Liberal Party. That's why Josh Frydenberg can't even get an agreement within his own party room for the National Energy Guarantee. By the way, why are the states involved? The states mm. are involved because they have a veto over the National Energy Guarantee. That's because the government needs the states to sign up to this because the states control half of energy policy. You know, the states control... Um, much of the grids in their own jurisdictions, obviously. Mm. So without the agreement of states like Queensland and Victoria, then the government can't get its policy through. Now, Queensland and Victoria have a few problems with the policy. The first is that the emissions target is ridiculously low. It won't even meet Australia's Paris commitments. Um, and it won't be able to be ratcheted up by a future government. Uh, Frydenberg wants to put the, the low target basically to set it in stone. The second problem they have is that renewable energy is basically going to be stopped in its tracks by this policy. Uh, Frydenberg envisages essentially that renewable energy will not be added to. In fact, no mm. generation will be added to if you look at the modelling, the ridiculous modelling that's come out of this process. Basically a fiction. I mean, like so much in this stu in this field, you know, essentially it's policy-based evidence. It's just a bunch of numbers that have been cooked up to make it look good, but are essentially wrong. I mean, nobody believes that renewable energy won't continue to grow in this country, mm. um, but that's actually what the modelling for the NEG says. Um, and then the, the third and final problem that the states have uh, with this is that the coalition can't actually agree to it. So Queensland and Victoria are making the very salient point that why should we sign up to a policy that the government itself has not yet agreed on? Exactly. And Ben, this is supposed to be providing certainty. I mean, that's the whole point of having some national energy guarantee is that uh, people investing in technologies, including companies, need some level of certainty, which they have not had for many, many years. Um, this is supposedly technology agnostic, which is one of the selling points of this policy. But Ben, do you think it's actually undermining certainty by having so much to and fro and lack of unity. 
Oh, of course, Amy. I mean, you know, I just laugh whenever I hear this term certainty bandied about in energy policy. I mean, look at this government. This government repealed a working carbon tax, okay, after all of the stuff that went down in the Rudd-Gillard years to finally get a emissions trading scheme with a cap on carbon emissions that was in place and operational, the government repealed that. So where was the certainty there? <laughs> yeah. exactly. The government then went on and undermined the renewable energy target. It amended the renewable energy target to reduce the actual target itself. So where was the certainty there? All right, the renewable energy target was a Howard government policy. Tony Abbott reduced it. No certainty there. So there's no certainty in energy policy, essentially. And to argue that the Liberal Party can provide certainty in energy policy, I think, is one of the biggest jokes of this whole process. It's it's just farcical. It is farcical. Um, and Ben, where do you think we're going to end up? Because there's a lot happening. The ACCC um, head, Rod Sims, is meeting with the Nationals this morning and they're going off on a tangent wanting the ACCC to be involved. Um, where are we going to end up? Are we going to end up with any outcome? Probably not. And and paradoxically, that might actually be the best outcome because under current settings with essentially no policy, uh, renewable energy has been making quite good strides. A lot of renewable energy has been added to the grid over the last mm. couple of years, uh, funnily enough, uh, because of the cold hard economics, because renewable energy is cheaper than coal and any other form of, of energy generation. So, um you know, the, the best outcome probably would be actually um, no neg. Um, I think I think that's pretty clear now. And, and any, if you read anything in the media or hear any journalists talking about how we need the neg to finally solve the, the problems of energy policy over the last decade, don't believe them because the neg's a disastrous policy and it's actually worse than doing nothing. Um, and, I, and I think... For a whole bunch of reasons, nothing will will be the outcome here because the coalition can't solve its internal problems on energy. It's hopelessly divided on really on on all of these issues. Um, There's every incentive for the states to block the neg because they have their own state-based renewable energy targets um, and they're ploughing ahead. In fact, they're they're doing the hard yards. Queensland and Victoria have got very successful state-based renewable energy targets of 50% Mm. um, and and they're actually lowering electricity prices through uh, deploying a lot of wind and solar. So, yeah, I mean, I I just don't think anything will happen. We'll just see more bickering and, and just more policy paralysis, basically. What a nice, optimistic view. (laughs) It's probably true, though. There's nothing to prove otherwise, is there, or suggest otherwise, um, given the current state and history of energy policy. Well, look, never say never, but looking back at the last decade of energy policy, you wouldn't be holding your breath for some outbreak of consensus (laughs) or even compromise. No, exactly. Now, I want to get on to uh, the environment because it's really important and we often don't talk about the environment. And the first one I wanted to talk about, Barnaby Joyce has released a book because, of course, he needs more privacy, so he decided to open up his life to the public. Um, but we're not going to talk about his book. We're going to talk <laughs> I'm instead... I'm really glad about that. I know. Thank God, because I haven't even read I really it. I haven't looked have at the talk talking about. points. Yeah. This is my nice segue. Yeah. Barnaby Joyce, let's not talk about his book. Let's talk about his views about the Leadbeater's possum and the fact that he wants to, along with other forestry advocates, get it off the critically endangered list, which goes against all evidence uh, that 
the ANU scientific teams have put out and the Wilderness Society is uh, running a good campaign about this to really try to prevent such um, an important uh, animal from, you know, basically dying out and becoming extinct and what this really comes down to is about um, forests and logging and the fact that we're still uh, logging our native forests and the fact that the federal government's not doing anything um, to intervene they're actually almost sitting on their hands deliberately. Yes, they are. Well, this has been the most anti-environment government for 60 years. I think that's fair to say that. Um, You know, if you pick any topic within the environment, you know, it's pretty hard to find a positive outcome there, whether it be logging, um, whether it be marine conservation. Josh Frydenberg actually allowed fishing into something like one half of Australia's marine conservation areas um, earlier this year. Um, I mean, that hasn't got a lot of publicity, but that's a disastrous decision for the health of Australia's oceans. Um, If you want to look at climate change, obviously emissions are rising under this government and continue to rise. Um, What is the role of the Environment Minister, Ben? Let's get back to basics. Isn't he supposed to be protecting the environment? Yeah, I mean supposedly yes but but i mean it's like the old joke isn't it you know i mean can you i mean yeah i I don't even know what to say about this this government's environment policies they're so bad that you can't even really make jokes about them actually i mean it's just very depressing um it's really been a policy of greenwash and of kind of fabrication at every turn, you know, whether we look at some of their policies like uh, direct action, so-called direct action, which was a policy of just handing out money to carbon polluters under the guise of reducing emissions. Of course, it hasn't reduced emissions. Emissions have gone up. If you look at things like this $444 million grant to the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. We had Christina Keneally on the show last week while you were away, you know, talking about that scandal of public administration, just giving half a billion dollars to a foundation that didn't ask for the money without any due diligence, uh, with no application or tender mm, process. It was a nice surprise. Yes, they thought they'd won the lotto. <laughs> well, uh, they really did, actually. Yep, they cashed in there. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it is. It is very depressing. You know, I haven't followed um, the logging policy too closely lately, but you know, um, actually, neither the state government nor the federal government have covered mm. themselves in glory over logging in Victoria's forests. Logging is on- ongoing in in Victorian forests, particularly in Gippsland. Yep. Um, I'm really not sure why we're still logging in the 21st century. I mean, we don't. Well, probably, we don't need to. We, we certainly don't need to on any kind of. Uh, resource security kind of level Mm. Um, and you know it's pretty obvious to anyone who looks at the numbers that the economic benefits through tourism and environmental services for these areas are much higher if we leave the forests intact and that's before you even talk about the fact that these are the catchments for Melbourne's water Water. Mm -hmm. so yeah I mean it's just it's very hard to 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 be optimistic when you look at environment policy in this country it's there's been a wholesale capture of our regulators by industry um and and in many cases i think sadly the environment movement has failed you know as strong as it is as active as it is 
it's not winning, you know, it's losing mm. and, and, and we're going backwards on many levels. Mm. And there's um, one other element I'm just going to mention and I'll follow this up um, later on, but I was shocked to read that uh, Vic Forest is logging certain areas where the greater glider is known to live so that it can tell um, what methods kill more greater gliders so that they can measure how many are left and then um, try and figure out which is the better option in terms of native forest logging. I mean, that's another shocking example of of policy that just makes absolutely no sense and, and the state government and the opposition really need to start examining uh, these kind of activities and realise that it is an election issue, a state election issue in particular for November and that a lot of inner city and outer city people and country people are very feel very strongly about it. Yeah, I mean, we're killing the gliders to save them. I, I don't yeah, understand. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, but um, but it does make sense in the in the crazy world of environmental regulation, where oftentimes the people making these rules are making these rules explicitly for the industry themselves. Um, and you know, um, I think we do need to do a wholesale rethink of environmental regulation in this country because it's failing. Um, another good example is Queensland, where if you look at the Adani mine in, in Queensland, the Carmichael mine, it's got every single environmental approval required to operate. The reason it hasn't started mm. because they don't have the money. But um, it's been signed off on by environmental regulators in Queensland and indeed by the federal government. How can an enormous coal mine be signed off on by environmental regulators? The answer is because the environmental regulations are broken. Mm -hmm. And it's going to really affect the Great Barrier Reef, which is, of course, what this grant will help prevent. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's just uh, the more you look into it, the crazier it gets, basically. It is a bit disturbing. And, Ben, there are a couple of other ethical issues that have come up. There are some MPs that are under question. Um, one was Emma Hussar, who has announced she wouldn't recontest the next election, but now is reconsidering her position. I mean, what's been going on in terms of, I guess, the, the conduct of certain people? We've seen Michaelia Cash. We've seen Emma Hussar. We've seen, um, is it... What's his name? Ben Roberts. Well, he's. Well, let's leave Ben Roberts Smith out of it. He's a um, former soldier, VC, and well, um, he's just been highly decorated fellow. Yeah. Um, but he's been on the front pages in the last few yeah, days. Yeah. So it certainly has become a publicity issue. Yep. So um, Ben Roberts Smith is, I think, um, a good example of something that's gone profoundly wrong inside Australia's military. Our special forces have major issues and there's been a number of reports and inquiries revealing significant cultural mm. and ethical it's problems. It's a systemic problem, it's isn't a, it? It's, it's not down problem. to one individual. Certainly not. Um, but there's been accusations of war crimes. There's, in fact, an investigation about war crimes in Afghanistan by these soldiers. So that's very serious and I think should be taken very seriously indeed. Um, you know, that's that's about all I would be prepared to say mm, on that. We I need mean, to wait until the investigation's been conducted, don't yeah, we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Emma Hazar is the Labor member for Penrith, uh, marginal seat. Um, mm. She's a backbencher. She ran into a lot of trouble with a bunch of anonymous leaks to the BuzzFeed journalist Alice Workman, which splashed um, the problems in her electoral office all over the the front page of, of BuzzFeed and, and so her um, her personal conduct in 
in as a parliamentarian came under considerable scrutiny. Now, there's a lot of people who think that she didn't really have much to, to worry about there, um, but there was an internal labour investigation um, that cleared her of some of those charges, but also found that there was some problems in her office, some significant problems in terms of um, parliamentary staff, staffers working for her. She had a very high turnover of staffers and certainly some of those staffers were pretty disgruntled working for her. So um, she then announced that she wasn't going to stand for re-election because she felt that the negative publicity um, was too damaging for her. Um, But um, perhaps she's now (laughs) reconsidering. (laughs) I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, But, you know, it's it's one of those things where... um, it's a murky world politics and, mm. and, you know, obviously this is really about the New South Wales factions. She's made some enemies in politics and when you make enemies, what they can do is they can try and hurt you through the media. Mm. And we've seen that in a number of recent elections and by-elections. Uh, the internal enemies of Alex Batal, for example, the Greens candidate yep. for the the um, seat of Cooper, as it's now known, um, she had a a pretty sustained campaign of leaking against her during the by-election and I think a similar kind of campaign against Emma Hazar. Um, They're very damaging and and they lead to people oftentimes being forced out of politics. Now, is that a good thing for our democracy? Well, I don't think it is. Um, But there's clearly also an obligation for those journalists if they're presented with newsworthy information to report on that stuff. That's their job. So I Mm. think the criticism and the antagonism directed against Alice Workman for reporting on these leaks, I think that's been misguided because ultimately she's there as a journalist to report on politics. She's the federal politics reporter for BuzzFeed. If people tell her stuff about a parliamentarian, then I think, yes, it's pretty obvious that she should report that. Mm. But do they have a, a kind of expectation that they need to verify whether something is in fact true or likely to be true or just a rumour? Yeah, this is where it gets tricky because I think there should be an obligation to try and chase down and verify these rumours. I mean, um, I think it can be lazy journalism to just say, oh, people are saying this, you mm. know, and then we approached the MP and they said, no, it's not happening. Um, you know, that, that kind of he said, she said stuff. I think, though, with Emma Hazar, it was more than that. And, in fact, as we know, there was an internal labour investigation. So um, it wasn't just a case of unfounded rumours and leaks against her. It was, it was a bit more than that. Um, so, yeah, um, murky, definitely. Um, not very pleasant, absolutely. Um, but newsworthy, yes. Mm. And Ben, just finally, uh, we saw the result as we started our chat of the by-elections. That's uh, suggested that the election, federal election, will not be held this year. Do you think that's now the case? Yeah, I think so. I think if they'd got a successful result in the by-elections, I think a lot of people thought that Malcolm Turnbull might try to go early go maybe in September or October this year, Mm. um, that seems to be now on the back burner and the government will look to sort of fight on into the new year and and look for a more opportune time for the federal election in 2019. Ben, it's been wonderful chatting with you about federal politics once again and great to see you and I hope you have an awesome week. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Great to have you back, mate. That was Ben Altham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda and cultural studies lecturer. He does many things and uh, is obviously full of um, interesting news, 
usually not necessarily positive news, but we can't blame him for that. We've got to blame the politicians. So let's start um, making our voices heard. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Yes, you are tuned in to 3 Triple R FM. This is Uncommon Sense. As I mentioned, I'm really excited to have with me Richard Todd, who is a filmmaker. He uh, is the director and producer of this film, Dying to Live. He's also a cinematographer and uh, he's the director of one other very uh, prominent film, doc- a particular documentary that you may have already seen or heard of called Frack Man, um, which uh, I I hadn't seen yet and I just started watching it last night and was like, oh, it's so good. So I'm really excited now to talk to Richard and discuss your fabulous films, but in particular Dying to Live. Thanks for coming in, Richard. Thanks for having me, Amy. It's so wonderful to have you. You were just saying you're from Western Australia. So yeah, we've brought the weather for you here today. And I know you just said you're a surfer. So I don't think we really have any excellent beaches right in Melbourne. No, you have to go for a bit of a wander, mm. down to Phillip Island or somewhere. Yep, you could go down to my neck of the woods in the surf coast in Bellarine Peninsula. So there are a few options if you have some time off. Uh, but Richard, we're talking about something particularly important and serious today, which is the topic of organ and tissue donation. And your film talks about this issue through some really important personal stories and they're very moving stories and everyone is you know particularly different and has a a different experience but there's also a common theme which is these people are very unwell some of them are dying you know they have a really limited time to receive an organ and or tissue and uh and you're following these people i mean how did you um First of all, come up with the idea for this film and then how did you, I guess, find the the right people to tell this story? I've been particularly drawn to, you know, what they're terming now cause documentaries so that so that there's not only a story to be told but, you know, there's something at the end of it and hopefully something that can be fixed or need changing. So obviously with Frackman, you know, the, it was the big debate about coal seam gas versus mm. farmland and water. Um, and then with this one, you know, I found out very early by watching a program um, that um, was actually Al Turner and the Zadie Foundation. And there was a program on on Zadie and um, the stat that came out from that was that, you know, if you asked 10 people, 86% of people said that they would donate if if, they, if it came to, you know, someone passing. Mm. But then when you have a look at how many people are signed up on the registry, it drops down to 36%. And so there's this massive gap where people want to, but for some reason they aren't. Mm. And then there's a further problem with if, if the family do, does not understand the wishes of that particular person when, when, for example, they're in the ICU unit and they have to say goodbye, um, a further 50 percent of the families will actually say no because they don't understand the wishes with mm. regards to someone passing. So you could just see how um, that that willingness of 86% of people just starts to fall and fall and fall until uh, the stage that we're, we're wasting perfectly good, good organs and, mm. and people like the characters are waiting as a result. 
Yeah, and the foresight um, that's sometimes needed to have that discussion. I mean, a lot of people think oh, I'm going to live forever. You know, I'll be eighty. Um, and are my organs even useful by then? You know, I can't even think about death right now. Um, or that, like sometimes in your film, some people assume it's on their license because that was the previous regime where you opt in and it's indicated on your driver's license. I mean, what are some of the reasons you've heard for people not having signed up but having, you know, a generally positive attitude to organ donation? Yeah, look, I guess there's a, there's a few myths around kind of organ donation itself and you do hear them it's like oh look mm. I drink too much no one would like my liver is a real common one yeah. obviously uh, smokers think that they can't donate yet yet mm. there's there's amazing technology these days where they can clean real dirty lungs etc so so I mean those type of things come up a lot but I think yeah. part of it has been probably apathy on our own sides and and because there was the easiness of um, the box ticking on the driver's mm. license, um, people got used to that system and a lot of people just don't even realise that, that it's not on the driver's licence. In fact, Adelaide's, sorry, South Australia is the only place now that's left with that box ticking system. So, so they physically have to, you know, go online and fill out, it's a really quick fill out these mm. days. They've, they've changed um, an old clunky health.gov.au website and now it is really quick. It's just a matter of going online, filling out the form and you have your Medicare card there and you just fill out and you're done like in two minutes. Mm. So I, I guess with the film we're hoping that um, the film is a tool to be used to, to get the awareness out there so that people do sign up and have have that conversation. And look, the other point that you made, Amy, is about, I mean, it's a conversation about death, so it's not your usual Friday evening dinner conversation. Mm. So so the other part of it is, you know, you really have to proactively decide that you're going to go home and talk to your family about, look, if anyone does pass, mm. you know, I just want to tell you that I've decided to be an organ donor, you know, and what about you, you know, so I've had the conversation with my wife obviously and and we've both signed up and then our kids that are 8 and 12 also understand our wishes and um, and it's the same with my parents, they know if anything ever happens to all of us, they know mm-hmm. that, you know, we we want to donate, you know. Yeah. And there are some circumstances where, you know, even if you've signed up and you've expressed that you want to donate, you know, the death kind of has to occur in certain circumstances to enable the organs to be viable. So certainly even those who have registered, you know, either may not pass away soon, which is great. You know, we obviously wouldn't want that. But then, you know, even if they've signed up, their organs may not be viable in some way or cannot be retrieved in time to use them. Yeah, it's, 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 real, it's a really important fact. There's only 1%. Of, of circumstances that mm. tick all the boxes and it, and it usually um, involves them being kind of inside a hospital already and they're already, you know, on life support, etc. So, so you know, it is a misconception, which I also had, you know, you often have that image of, you know, motorbike rider on the side of the road and thinking, oh, he's going to be an organ donor. But unless you know, suddenly he or she was rushed back and they were on life support and still yeah. still alive at that stage, um, the conditions wouldn't wouldn't warrant organ donation because the organs start to deteriorate so quickly, mm. as you can imagine. Yes, you need the heart to continue pumping blood through your body to keep all those organs alive 
and and working. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And um, even though you know it could it could end up with brain death, yeah. But the heart's still going to to now. Now there's amazing stuff um, coming out of some of our hospitals in Australia. For example, we did a a little sequence at St Vinnie's in Sydney. It didn't make mm. it into the final cut, but but um, there's this technology called Heart in the Box, and they literally. Um, once they've removed um, the heart from from the donor person, yep. they're able to keep this um, the heart alive at, at a at a kind of at a better rate, and then that allows them to to move the heart distances mm. they weren't able to move them in the past because because that deterioration period is extended. Uh, because of this heart in the box technology, and I mean, and they're starting to try to do it with other organs also. Well, that's really excellent to hear. And there's some amazing um, transplant surgeons that you feature in this film, um, which, are, you know, they just seem like they're doing such nerve-wracking but very important work. Um, and they certainly, as in the film, feel that gravity of just how, you know, serious this, this work is. I want to start with Zadie. You mentioned her and she is the beginning of the film and she really, her story, you know, bookends the film. It's all about, um, you know, a young girl who's given, said she, you know, told her parents she wanted to give her organs and tissue if she was to die. Um, which is, you know, so impressive and mature and brave, you know, to be thinking about that at such a young age. Um, she was one of the youngest. I think um, her dad, Alan, said that in 2004 she was the only child under the age of 16 to be an organ and tissue donor. She was about seven and a half. Yeah, that's right. Away. And, in fact, when I first um, saw that story on, I think it was a Today Show, um, my daughter was around the same age, at, mm-hmm. you know, of seven years old, Kiki, and, and, you know, it really struck a chord because I was just thinking, you know, imagine um, just, just, A, losing someone at that age because it's such a puppy dog age. Mm. And then, secondly, her having that, like you said, that maturity to, to say to mum and dad, you know, if anything ever happened, I wanted to donate my organs. And then, you know, then Al and Kim, um, who's Zadie's mum, thinking about the fact that she was the, the, the only girl under the age of 16 in Victoria that year and, and they were like, that. I mean, kids die, so how could that be? So that was the beginning of, you know, a big campaign on on Alan's side, um, starting with the kind of Rainbow Foundation in Zadie's name. Mm-hmm. And also um, I don't think he expected it to turn out to what it turned out to be because, you know, it started off as a part-time thing while he was doing his full-time job, but very, very it, – it, it quickly grew and, and the obsession took over and now Al's, you know, running this big foundation and he has been doing so for nearly 10 – well, just over 10 years now. Well, it's really impressive the work he's been doing and, it, and this is really featured in the film. And obviously the lack of awareness was clear, um, you know, when they're up at the MCG and the cricket's on and they're talking to a range of people. You know, you see so many people signing up who assumed they were either signed up or didn't even know, you know, that it was an easy thing to opt in. Um, that kind of awareness raising and education is really important. This film is important in terms of um, providing an insight 
into the lives of people who really need um, the donation of an organ and or tissue. And I really want to talk about some of the people who receive um, donations or are waiting for one. Um, there's a whole range of people. Uh, Kate Hansen is one of those people who has type 1 diabetes and has been, you know, suffering with that since she was about four. Um, and she's been on is it dialysis quite a long time, has a lot of pain, um, many symptoms. She has press syndrome um, and she's waiting for a kidney and a pancreas. So that's, you know, a pretty big operation to, you know, need two organs. Um, and she's still waiting yeah, um, I mean, out of the half a dozen characters, I mean, thankfully, um, everyone except for Katie and ends up actually with the transplant mm. at the end of the film. So it was really tough because, I mean, obviously got to know her so so well. I, you know, she's she's a really good friend now, mm. and I know the family really well. And um, Mum Lisa's constantly keeping me in the loop if anything's going wrong and also if anything's going right and um sadly yesterday when i when i jumped off the plane uh, sorry on sunday i found out that um kate had had a heart attack that morning and and took nearly 90 minutes of a whole bunch of great hero ambos to bring her back and she's currently in hospital now mm. and she's and she's pretty sick she's she keeps on threatening to escape and come to the screening tonight <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'd love to take the screening to her yeah. so we are talking about some of the cast are talking about going there tomorrow just to go and visit her so no she she's in a whole lot of pain and she's just she's just out of the ICU unit again and and what she's had to battle I mean mm. she's an absolute Viking warrior, you know, that's it's um, it's quite soul destroying to see what what she has to go through, and hence why if we can get the Kates off the list any quicker, um, you know, it's just going to reduce the amount of time that they have to spend on on the waiting list. Mm. It takes a lot of grit and resilience, and I think that's an understatement, to get through what Kate's going through. And certainly some of the things she says, um, you know, is that she's fighting for her family and her partner as well as for herself, um, because obviously no one would want to lose Kate, but it takes a toll. And, you know, she doesn't want to be a burden, she says, to, to other people. And I know that's a common theme for people with chronic illness is, you know, they don't want to be different and they want to have a normal life. And, you know, people, I think, take that for granted, having, you know, normalcy and um, family with them and not needing to plan their lives around an illness. But, you know, with all of these people that you're featuring, you know, they talk about not having a normal life and, and having to constantly think about their illness and how all-consuming it can be. I mean, it's not really a, a great way to live, is it? No, and I think it's a, a real eye-opener uh, and I hope people will really feel that by watching the film mm. um, as to kind of how appreciative we should be for normality. You know, there's a, there's a stage when uh, I know Woody, one of the other characters, talks about that, you know, I asked him about his bucket list and he's like, all I want to do is eat a banana, you know, because of the potassium yeah. and the dialysis. He can't eat bananas and he loves them. And he's like, yeah, I, you know, I said, you know, what do you want to do when he's a bikey? I thought for sure he's going to say, I'm going to, I want to drive right across Australia, you know, but he was <laughs> like, I just want to have a wee and eat a banana, you know. Yeah. And, I, and so whenever 
you know, we start complaining about any of our first world problems. It's, you know, I often say to my son, hey, you know, like Woody just wants to take a piss. Like that's yeah, all he exactly. wants to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is really shocking. And he actually had two uh, kidney transplants before that, you know, didn't work for various reasons. And he has a third. I mean, that's a, a huge amount of operations to go through and a lot of up and down really isn't it and uh, unknown uncertainty yeah totally and um you know there's there is um, some pretty dark times for them you know going through those journeys and you know you, you spoke about that bird and you would he hardly he's he's quite close to where i live in margaret river and he he wouldn't even let people know that he was sick a lot of people didn't even know that he had a kidney problem or that he was going to do dialysis three times a week and he would just keep that to himself you know mm. and a lot of it um, you know, like Kate said the same thing about I think the the reality of um, making this film for me was seeing like what it's actually like on a daily basis for not only them but mm. them and their family and, I mean, the family's going through a, a mental pain rather than a physical pain but, but there is that constant – there's no way to plan for tomorrow unless you know you're going to have it and then even having it, um, you know, how long – Will, will the organ last and will I end up sick again or will I, you know, have a great run? So they also have a really amazing philosophy on, you know, living, you know, each day to the fullest because mm. because they have been in that position of not knowing if there was going to be a tomorrow. Exactly. And um, that's an excellent point you make about not wanting to look sick. You know, a lot of people look really well but actually there's a lot happening behind the scenes at home you know they're putting on a brave face you know they might be putting on their makeup or working out like Woody was to to look like he was fit and well but really you know he's really struggling Mm. so I think that's another thing is that you know what you see on the surface isn't really what's happening underneath and that's what this documentary is doing is bringing you into their homes I mean it's obvious that you were there at some really key points you and the crew but also you it looks like you gave them um, cameras at times to film um, some of the moments when you couldn't be there yeah there was a couple of little um, cameras that we sent out at different times um, and also we tended to have a film crew um, across all of the states. So we filmed mm. in four different states. Um, so I had a guy called Richard Kickbush here in Victoria who's a great cameraman and um, but it was also really important that um, not only were they good cinematographers but they had to have the right kind of vibe to be able to slip into some pretty, you know, there's some pretty precarious moments within the film where we we were really let in by the families mm. and Rich had that right demeanour and he got to know um, Kate's family really well and, and sometimes I get a call from Lisa, um, Kate's mum, just saying, you know, um, Kate's in an ambulance, she's on the way to the hospital and and it's, you know, it take me 10 hours to get there from Margaret River. So I'd give Rich a quick call if he was available. He would usually jump in and get there first and then I'd, I'd jump on a plane and make my way over. Mm. Other times we just had this most bizarre kind of timing occurring, which we, which Al said is Zadie pulling the strings. But I, I was like on holidays on the Gold Coast with the kids and then – Tony Barrett, who has the liver transplant, um, he's based in Brisbane. Mm. And I get the phone call 
probably six months earlier than they're expecting to say, Tony's just about to go in for his liver transplant. I'm like, no way, I'm on the Gold Coast. So I jumped in the car at, you know, 10pm and I was there in 40 minutes. So we had a bit of that occurring too, just this incredible serendipity when yeah. when I seemed to be in the right place to be able to get somewhere. And it was the same with Holly. I was actually in Perth on the way over to see Kate and Alan in Melbourne. And I, and I was, instead of being Margaret River three hours away, I was actually in Perth when I got the call from Holly saying she was going to get her lung transplant. So it was quite bizarre that, you know, the timing was just right for us to be able to capture some of those moments. Yeah, I did wonder that because you're covering a lot of stories in this film and it's obvious that it's a long-term project because, you know, waiting on the list is a long-term thing. Um, and you talk about Holly. I mean, that's one of the stories that's really moving, although they all are, but that one, um, you know, towards the end, it's just like... How how does this all happen? Oh, because yeah. Holly got a double lung transplant because she um, suffers from cystic fibrosis, which looks like a, a horrible thing to have to go through. And she, I think, had about two years approximately to go. Um, and, you know, the fact that she got the lung transplant was a big deal. But then at the end, in this wonderful event, um, you know, where they've got donors' families there and, and uh, the people who've received donations, there's a, an amazing meeting between um, Holly and someone else. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, without mate, it all mate, away? yeah I won't give too much away. But it's, um, oh, well, it's, a, it's a really interesting um, topic that, it's quite topical right now because mm. there there is um, like a clover secrecy between um, the donor families and the recipients um, and it's not dissimilar to the way that you know adoption works etc mm. but there, there is a um, there is a way of them being able to communicate via donate life and and the question is is getting thrown around as to um, you know whether um, the the kind of the rules around that could be loosened up a little bit. Mm. Um, there, there's also talk of times when that kind of relationship doesn't work and, and part of the reason I think of not just having a direct um, introduction between donor families and um, a recipient mm. is that because of the times when something um, goes wrong. For example, the one that springs to mind from my side of it is um, if they get to know each other and then for any reason the donor family finds out that, that the organ hasn't survived or there's rejection, yeah. etc. Um, but anyway, it's a really interesting debate that's occurring right now and I don't know if there's a clear answer on it because mm. obviously being a recipient, you'd, you'd be pretty keen to say thank you to the donor family and they usually are, um, but the donor family may not always be that interested um, the other way back, you yes. know, because they're still obviously dealing with grief and et cetera. They're happy that they know that, you know, it, it has helped someone else mm. survive so that there's not that feeling of complete waste, um, which is something that you hear very commonly. But you also hear that not all of the donor families want, want to interact. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty complex um, – it's a pretty complex part of, of the whole jigsaw puzzle, to be honest – it is very complex because, I mean, you know, the 
the donor may have made their wishes known, but perhaps the donor's family don't agree with that and, you know, are upset or, um, you know, or the donor's family had to make a decision on that person's behalf when they weren't absolutely certain of their wishes. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, not really, I'm not saying ethical issues, but just things like big issues, mm. really serious questions that are hard for anyone to have to deal with. But certainly when it happens and you're, you're dealing with grief immediately and someone is, you know, going to die and they're in hospital, I mean, that's kind of the last thing anyone really wants to deal with, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And I, I, I personally haven't been in that situation but I really can't imagine it and you when you talk to people that have been like Alan Turner obviously mm. when, when they went through it and just almost you know like it's occurring but a numbness not knowing what's happening and I think that gets back to that kind of that first point that we made that how important it is to have had that conversation because once you know then that's taken out of it and also you you could have a bunch of family members turn up for example sisters brothers uncles you know grandparents now um, some of them may not know the wishes. However, if if the immediate family does know the wishes, they, they, they're like, oh, no, he he or she specifically said to me that they want and they're on the registry, you mm. know, so, so there's no there's no grey area. And then you go, oh, you, you could almost then convince other members of the family. But if it is grey and they're not on the registry, then, of course, in that moment of grief and you're dealing with everything else, for sure you would err on the side of conservatism, mm. I'd imagine, and go, well, you know, I didn't know, so maybe, you know, do we want to do it? Because he never said anything to me, for example. It's so, yeah, it just shows how important it is to, to have, like, to sign up and have the chat. Exactly. And a lot of the um, things that can be donated often you wouldn't assume would make a real difference. But there is a story, um, and I think it is... Let me double-check. Um, Henry? Yes, maybe? Henry yeah. about his uh, corneas. And, I mean, that's a really critical example of, you know, he needs to care for his wife who is becoming more frail. He wants to be able to see his own country. Um, he's an Indigenous Australian man who's you know, lives in the outback. Um you know, it's just a really great example of of something that can make a real difference, but it's, you know, it's tissue really and it, it isn't a whole eye or anything. It's like a, a the film over an eye that's really going to make a difference to his whole life. Yeah, and the tissue often ends up the poor cousin in this story. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing about the tissues, we, we didn't say it in the film, but, but it is an important point, um, and that is that you don't have to be in that 1% situation that we spoke about earlier on that you do with organs. So mm-hmm. so even people that have passed at home, for example, still have the opportunity to donate tissues. And so so that's, um, you know, it's they are important, obviously, skin tissues for burns victims, et cetera, corneas yeah. for people that are blind. I mean... Um, There's heart valves as well. Heart yeah. valves, exactly. And with Henry, for example, um, you know, his wife's in a wheelchair with bad, uh, really bad hip problems, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so Henry ends up kind of being, you know, her feet. He pushes around town, Halls Creek in the Kimberley. Mm. Um, and um, Barbara, his partner, um, is basically Henry's eyes until we until we follow him through to the corneal transplant. And, and obviously even being able to see a few feet now, which before, you know, he, he would only 
literally be able to see you know, six inches away. So mm. so now even to be able to see a little bit of a distance and, and now to be able to, like, steer steer the wheelchair himself, etc. I'm sure it's made a really big difference to both Henry and Barbara's life. Mm. And, and as you said, it's really important. Um, it's brought up in the film that they are able to see their country. There's, a, you know, a completely different connection to country, obviously, with the Indigenous uh, First Nations people versus, you know, us us white Aussies. Um, so yeah. so it is really important for Henry when I spoke to him prior prior to him having the transplant, you know, he, he just often spoke about just wanting to be able to see rocks and trees and mm. country again. Well, it's, it's certainly something we're taking for granted every day. Um, I'm speaking with Richard Todd, who is the filmmaker of Dying to Live, which is showing tonight at the Melbourne International Film Festival and on Thursday night, so two opportunities. Um, I want to close out our discussion by talking about the many people involved and also the funding for this film. Because as we know, uh, funding any film in Australia is quite difficult and you um, have a range of, of funding sources and one of them is through Good Pitch which is, you know, has a range of um, philanthropists and other uh, interested parties who are part of that. Could you talk a bit about how you managed, you know, that element of, you know, you knew the, the story is important, the issue is really vital, so it's contributing to public debate. How did you get people behind this project? So we went through the traditional side for the first part of the financing, which is our screen agency. So mm. it was supported, because I'm in WA, firstly, Screen West was involved and then my co-producer, Ben McNeil, he's he's based in Brisbane. So we also went through Screen Queensland from his end. Mm-hmm. Then the national body, Screen Australia, came on board. So with those three elements um, and a distributor, which is Madman, Madman came yep. on as the distributor. And, you know, and it's fantastic because for someone like Madman, it's, it wasn't really a commercial decision. It was, it was a real decision to support it because of, of what the film was speaking to. And, um, you know, we thank them a lot because of without making those decisions um, as a distributor, we, we cannot get um, the, the rest of the financing. So that kind of locked up the, the production budget side of things. And then three years ago, um, Ian Darling brought the good pitch model to Australia. Um, and basically the idea of it is that they find half a dozen cause documentaries each year. They have to be um, this kind of feature film length. Mm. So they're usually films that are made for cinema and they have to have that, uh, you know, there's got to be a reason behind the filmmaker making the film. So we were very uh, fortunate in 2014 to be chosen with Frackman for Good Pitch. So so we were one of six films that year that got chosen and um, we got to understand how it was going to work with partners and philanthropists and, and how we could then steer an outreach campaign using the film as the tool. So mm-hmm. th- third year of Good Pitch, which was uh, 2016, was the final instalment of of them doing it. So they now have something like 19 films um, as a result of three years of good pitch. And, um, yeah, Dying to Live was one of those. So so we'll now start partnering up with a whole bunch of um, different groups and working out how we can have special screenings rather mm. than just the cinematic 
um, screenings. Uh, and, you know, we tend to do event screenings where we can have characters there or myself or Ben go along or Felicity, our impact producer, goes along and, and we try to get some type of outcome by using the film as the, as the tool. Because mm, I saw on your website you are open to community screenings and to try and get the word out to a whole range of Australians. Is that something people can express interest in or institutions can if they want to, you know, be part of this? Yeah, totally. I mean, we encourage, you know, um, hospitals and people that are touched by the transplant world, whether it's someone that's just had a family member that thinks they can get 100 people together at a community screening and they can just fill out, you know, uh, online on our website. Um, They can just jump on dineliv.com.au and they can just yeah, say we're interested in hosting a screening. Mm. And we, we did the same with Frackman, so we know how the model works. We use a cinema on demand model, which is just a matter of them ticketing and once, once it tips over a certain number of people, the screening goes ahead. So it's a, it's a good, easy platform um, to use. Mm. And, and it's, um, it's a great way to take it. Um, you can do it in the cinema, but you could also do it in a country hall if there's not a cinema in your town. Mm. And this is really all to, I guess, talk about this issue which we've been discussing. And um, I know that there has been a huge drive to get more people signed up in, you know, a rate over many years and it's clear that Alan has been, you know, a huge part of that movement as well as Donate Life. But in 2017, uh, it's good to note here that 1,675 lives were transformed by 510 deceased and 273 living organ donors. So, you know, the people who have donated the organs are a really critical part of this story that you show and the Zadie, but there's also Alice, the mother who, you know, gives her kidney, one of her kidneys to her son. Um, so there are people who, you know, the, they're a mother, they're a friend, they're a relative who are donating, you know, their, one of their kidneys to people who really need it right now. So that's another element of, of the story. Yeah, totally. And young Levi, I mean, you know, he was sick with with kidney problems from being born. And when I met him, he was only one one year old, gorgeous little kid. And they were waiting for the right time um, so that Alice could donate. And then um, they they have this um, indice which works out how 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 well the match would be and luckily for Levi uh, Alice is like a six out of six mm. and then the backup plan is with Levi's father Reese, who's like a three out of six so so hopefully you know Levi's got um has a good run with this with Alice's um kidney which currently everything seems to be going great mm. um and then the backup plan is if he needs a second kidney there's the potential that Reese, the father could could be the donor a second mm. time around and in the meantime we just hope as technology improves that um we can extend the periods of times that these you know these organs will last but now with um re- rejection glo- um sorry re- rejection drug technology has got so good that that um even when the body as you can imagine you're putting this foreign object into your body and the first thing your body tries to do is reject it because yeah. your immune system is built to do that so so they've worked out um you know with with all of these different type of drugs how to you know reduce your um immune system for a period with mm. with these immune suppressants and then they've just got to get the balancing act right so that you're not going to get sick 
in another way yeah. because you've just had a major operation. Um, but you can allow the body to shut down part of the immune system so it doesn't reject the organ. Mm. And then slowly but surely after that first period of, of that organ wanting to be rejected, um, it starts home. It's, I mean, it's incredible science, really. It is, yeah. And, you know, there is a constant monitoring, constant blood tests and checking to make sure that everything is going well, especially in that first year. Um, and, yeah, I actually met someone who'd received a kidney who was in my hospital room and he was a lovely Irish man and he was very, very grateful and thought he would also write a letter. So, you know, it was wonderful to see that that was even happening, you know, and it was the first, the first time I'd met someone who had received an organ from, from a donor. So, yeah, it certainly got me thinking about, about the issue. But this film has got me thinking even more. And I really hope that uh, everyone can head along to see uh, one of the screenings whenever, if they miss out for MIF, because I know it's selling fast, um, there's many other opportunities for them to see it. And I believe distribution is going to be much wider by November. Yeah, we're looking at uh, around the first week, first or second week of um, November, we're going to release through Mad Men. And um, it just happens to be the first week, I think around the 8th of, oh, sorry, the 8th of November is Zadie's 21st birthday oh, so wow. so we we may even you know hang it around that date mm. um and yeah i think there's only like 30 tickets left for tonight as of this morning and then thursday night there's only about 10 so yeah if, if people miss out this time um then be great when we when we're back here in november it'd be, yeah. it'd be fantastic for people to to come along and see it or or to host their own screening Definitely. Richard, it's been amazing to hear from you and to see the work you're doing is just so important and um, also the team that you've got around you to create these documentaries. So congratulations to you and everyone who is part of this film. Yeah, thanks very much, um, Amy, for having us and thanks to Triple R and and to MIF for, you know, giving us the chance to to get the word out there. Mm. That has been Richard Todd, who is the filmmaker of Dying to Live. It's showing at the Melbourne International Film Festival, which is tonight and Thursday. And there is a Q&A on each night with uh, Richard, some of the cast and crew. So you can meet some of the people who are featured in this film and uh, get along. And I hope that if you wanted to go, you get the last tickets that are available. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense and I am Amy Mullins. I'm with you up until noon today as I usually am on a Tuesday. It's great to be back with you and I hope you're as excited as me for the next conversation we'll be having. Um, I'm really excited to have with me in the studio Dr Karen Jones. She's a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Melbourne. Um, she has written extensively about trust in a range of schools scholarly places, uh, in books and journal articles. She's given many talks. She also writes about emotions and rationality and, uh, as her bio says, much of her work is from a feminist perspective, which is excellent. So I'm very excited now to join Karen um, and to talk about wise trust. Hi, Karen. Hi. Thanks, Amy. It's great to be here. It's so fabulous to have you. I um, was... 
a student of yours many years ago and I was enthralled by, um, you know, your talks about ethics because uh, it's one of those topics that it just affects people so much uh, in our daily lives and yet we don't really think about it from a philosophical angle all that often and to have I guess the theories and the ideas that can really challenge you also then means that you look at your own you know life ethical dilemmas and situations in different ways. Yeah that's uh, those theories are a great tool to think with and they invite you to conduct an ethical self-audit so you know whenever you hear about utilitarianism an act is right if and only if of all the acts available to the agent, it maximises the satisfaction of preferences everyone considered. That's the formal definition. Mm. But the basic idea is you should be doing the most good you can. Now, conduct an ethical audit of your own lives. When I do this, I feel very humbled, <laughs> according to that criteria. Yeah. Right? So um, it does give you like lots of resources for self-reflection, as well as a capacity to understand you know, major thinkers and theorists who thought significantly about ethics. Yeah. So it's one of my favourite classes. Is it? Oh, that's good. Because I think, um, you know, there's ethical theory and then there's applied ethics and they're both obviously very interrelated, aren't they? They are. And then there's a whole bunch of other topics that are sort of clustering around these, which I'm now having the opportunity to start to explore with students, but at the higher levels, like ethical expertise. Is there such a thing as ethical expertise? If there is, who's likely to have it? You know, should we look to philosophers for that? Should we look at, as I argue, people who are engaged in social justice movements who are Mm. trying to understand a value like the value of equality or social justice or freedom or whatever it is through active engagement with a set of political issues so you have those uh, sort of things spinning out from ethical theory including like what is the status of ethical theory itself but also whether anyone can have moral knowledge whether anyone can be a moral expert and if Mm. they can be should we defer to them so those are some other things I've talked about and it's there actually and this notion of moral deference mm. and trusting someone's testimony about what's right and wrong, that my work in trust and my work in ethical theory kind of come together. Because mm. I think, and this has proven somewhat controversial, that you can actually come to know important moral truths, things about what you should do through relying on someone else's testimony. And In the old, old days, this was kind of a commonplace. You go to your priest, your priest tells you what to do. Mm. Um, And then it's completely went out of favour. But I've tried to argue that sometimes it can actually be wise to trust people who are first person experientially and practically involved in an issue. So, Mm. you know, sometimes men just should trust what their feminist women friends say say about... their experience. uh, Yes. (laughs) And and that's going to have implications for what those men should do, Mm. like as allies and in their own behaviour. So that's where the ethical theory comes together with the work on trust to talk about the potential for testimony Mm. to pass moral knowledge between us. Yeah, it really is about... Yeah, trusting and relying on someone else's insights and knowing that they're coming from a place of honesty or, you know, trustworthiness, which is also, you know, always murky. Yeah, honesty um, and trustworthiness for sure. But I want to separate, you ran together in that comment, Mm. to trust and to rely. I don't think those are the same. I think we rely on people sometimes. We rely on things, you know, we rely on bicycles, cars, 
public transport. Mm -hmm. But for me, what separates them is that trust is not a matter of action like relying on is. It's an attitude that comes before and explains action. So, you know, that phrase like, oh, my goodness, when we're trust has been let down, we say, Mm. wow, how could I have been so blind? Why didn't I see that coming? And the answer is often we trusted them. And what I think that involves is an element of emotionality, an element of optimism about Mm. that other person's willingness to be responsive to you. So I want to say, yeah, reliance is a thing Mm. and it's a very uh, broad phenomenon that we see sometimes between people, but we also see between people and inanimate objects, tools, public transport systems. But trust is an attitude underlying not all cases of reliance but underlying some cases of reliance and it's this affective element that I think makes it so powerful but also so scary right you can get burnt because if you're viewing someone through this kind of optimism you're interpreting who they are what they say what they do in this more positive way that if you were just neutral you maybe wouldn't Mm. and that's sort of its power but it's also its danger That is very dangerous. And you talk about trust being an affective attitude and by affect we're talking about display of emotion or feeling of emotion. Um, And there's this kind of spectrum which, um, you know, you... I've seen in one of your slides, which I find really interesting, is that there's on the one end distrust and on the other end trust. Mm. And they're obviously two very different things, although they're they're on the same scale um but it has a range of i guess affects or lenses with which you view the person as to whether you're distrusting or trusting yeah and i want to say there's some in between and middle ground too Mm. and sometimes i think this middle ground is insufficiently theoretically explored but also this matters practically so what am i saying some people say i can't trust this person Right, I've got to go immediately to distrust. Mm. Actually, if you think you've got a kind of spectrum going on here, there are some more intermediate positions. There is, I think, neutrality. There's also a sort of hopeful trust. It's not quite full trust, yeah. right? but it's the kind of trust we sometimes have in our friends who've let us down once. And instead of going immediately to distrusting them, we mm. might sometimes, sometimes that might be justifiable. But sometimes the right thing to do is to continue with a bit of hopeful trust and then when your friend understands that that's what you're doing it can Mm. be an invitation for them to lift their game and to repair again that relationship that was perhaps broken by a betrayal Mm. so that's why I think it's important to see the spectrum from neutrality, from a kind of caution before you hit outright distrust, and from a kind of hopeful trust before you hit the full-on trust. Because once you see that, it helps you in your thinking. When you're trying to work out what you should do in an interaction, particularly with a person who has you know, let you down in the past, it lets you see there's more space to occupy than immediately going you betrayed me you know you're toast completely out of my circle I'm going to distrust you henceforth and maybe I'm even going to tell other people they should distrust you too yeah because I mean the fact that you say it's has an emotional component or there's an affect involved means that the other party can or should be able to read to some extent 
how you are approaching them and whether you are viewing them through a lens of distrust or trust. And some people are possibly more revealing than other people in terms of, you know, making that visible on their face or in their vocal tone or, you know, their actions. Yes. But it certainly does indicate that there's some level of reciprocity or some kind of interaction or dynamic that's occurring when you either approach someone with a sense of distrust or neutrality or, you know, full optimism. Mm, I think that's right. Um, And the communication's two-way. So we do communicate who we're trusting about what. Now, sometimes that's not explicit. Mm. That's just embedded in a whole background of ways we do things normally around here. You know, who's trusting you to do what's just kind of social... Uh, presupposition. The other side, though, is really interesting, and I've been thinking about this a lot. We want there to be trustworthy people, right? So we can trust them to do things for us Mm. or to take care of goods or whatever it is. But we also want those trustworthy people to, as if you like, put their hand up and say, you can trust me over here. Now, sometimes it's explicit and somebody says, you know, you can trust me about this. And sometimes Mm. the explicit statement of that is less likely to be believable, right? But we want to be able to communicate who is trustworthy. So if you like, we can match up the one who would trust with someone who is trustworthy in that area. And for me, this is really fascinating because this kind of communicative exchange occurs in a really rich social context. So I've been thinking about some of the ways in which bias and prejudice can destroy that communication. And there's some excellent examples of this. The Delta uh, airline flight attendants, one of my favourites, they were calling for a doctor and this young, um, but not super young, to be like a gynaecologist. So maybe she was in her early 30s. um, African-American woman put her hand up and the airline steward, so she's trying to communicate, you can trust me for medical matters, right? Yeah. Literally by putting her hand up. And the airline um, steward said, um, no, we're after doctors, you know, doctor or nurse or someone with real medical experience. And she said, yes, I'm a doctor. And again, she was pushed back against with like, what kind of doctor? What are your qualifications? Show me your qualifications. So. Mm. It was supposed to be a simple exchange, a call for expertise, right? Yeah. A clear signalling in that context that this person had expertise. But because of assumptions about African-American women, youth maybe had a part to play Mm. in it too. It was like she was talking to somebody who had their fingers stuck in their ears and was humming loudly. And that's a kind of pathology. That is a a uh, pathology that gives rise to us distrusting the trustworthy. Um, And I think we've got a lot of that going on. And by the way, we've got a bunch of that going on with um, African-Australian young people in Melbourne, you know, right Mm -hmm. at the moment. And what happens when that happens to you is it can leave you demoralised. And you can live up to the worst expectations when that's kind of constantly communicated at you, even though you're trying to communicate back. I'm trustworthy about this. It's like you're trying to communicate to people with who who are deaf, who who can't hear. Yeah. And well, what do you think that does to a person who is not only demoralised, but does that then mean that, I mean, they're trying to have an honest, like, I'm 
I'm trustworthy, here's my expertise, exchange with another person and they're not believed because of bias or prejudice, does that mean that then they feel like they're going to trust other people less? Like does it undermine trust? Um, it can but it certainly doesn't have to because, I mean, what's interesting is you can have multiple overlapping communities. So sometimes people are able, even in the face of all this sort of refusal to connect, to find other people to connect and so keep uh, a sense of the power of their own agency, right? But um, sometimes that doesn't happen. And mm. I think those who are routinely distrustful do show some kind of flaw in their character. And for me, this mm. is fascinating. This is what I've been trying to write about lately because a lot of people have written about the danger of trusting and it's obvious, right? Because um, you can be let down, you can be let down in really catastrophic ways. You know, think of all those paedophile priests who were trusted by um, family members and by children. But people ignore, though, the cost of distrusting without warrant. Mm. And that is a cost. It's an opportunity cost. Right? We could do something together if only we could build trust. But it's also a significant cost to those people who are preemptively distrusted, mm. um, to their power, their capacity to be, one way of thinking about it, is socially included, right? Um and for their chance to engage in sort of cooperative enterprises, but mm. also for their chance to keep a sense of themselves as agents with things to offer, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And let's walk this back a tiny bit because there's an interesting point um, that you make in one of your pieces about the fact that trust has three parts. So it's not just that um, A trusts B mm. and that's it, like I just trust you, you know unlimited trust yeah. there is the third element which is for that for um you know a certain thing yeah in a domain or area i think this is actually really important to observe because um if we think it's just you know i trust you or don't trust you and mm -hmm. that's supposed to be global well for a start that'd be really foolish it's like excuse me don't trust um me with like neurosurgery and don't let me anywhere near your plumbing we yeah. have no idea what the results of that would be there's all the stuff that mm. I just don't know about and as a trustworthy person I'm responsible for sort of having a sense of what my limits are and what my capacity is so that I don't um, over communicate trustworthiness where I simply don't have it mm. but on the trusters side it's also interesting because if we think it's got to be global and so I'm just going to trust you or not trust you, full stop, not in any area or otherwise. Mm. When we suffer a small letdown, and this is small, it's just part of being human, right? We're fallible, we're finite, we let each other down, right? You yeah. can think, ah, untrustworthy person, yeah. better not have anything to do with them. But if you think it's like, I'm trusting you in a domain, you know, and maybe I can realise actually, you know, you're really forgetful about money. Great friend. Mm, but mm. I'm going to be really careful when I lend you some money because it probably won't come back. <laughs> you can sort of recognise a gap or, you know, this is a wonderful friend will stand by me, but gosh, she had these awful experiences watching her mum die of cancer. If I've got a medical problem, I 
am not going to call on that person because that would be calling on her where she's limited and vulnerable and, you know, we can understand why that is. Mm. So if you have this more, it's about A, it's about B, so it's about two people or mm. groups of people, it doesn't have to be one, yeah. and it's about an area of interaction, that can help you see that... Um, we don't have to withdraw trust. We can think about how to place it more strategically in recognition of the limitations that each of us has and that we inevitably have because that's just, you know, what it is to be human. Mm. And probably one of the most extreme or intense versions of having to trust someone is in a relationship, like yes. a, a personal romantic relationship because often one's life is intertwined and you do things together in order to... Of have a mutual benefit yes. socially, financially, you know, there's a whole range of ways in which you're not just relying but trusting a person with many elements of your life. How does it work in that area when there are many domains yeah. of which you really need to trust someone? Yeah, I think we do trust our intimates in like a whole range of domains and areas. But there's one thing I think than a good relationship you have to really work at. And that is the communicative aspect of being a trustworthy person. So you have to work at understanding if you've got gaps and limits, which we all have gaps and limits, right? Making clear what those are. Mm. Now, for some relationships, some gaps and limits are going to be deal breakers, right? Some people have problems with intimacy, deal breaker if you're hoping for a life partner, right? But we all have sort of gaps and limitations and that need not be a problem with our trustworthiness if we're able to negotiate where those gaps are, Mm. talk about their significance um, and maybe over time eliminate some of them, but maybe not. The relationship grows in other directions in other ways. Mm. Um, So... Really, that does require a level of self-awareness and reflection, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, there's a set of problems about being able to achieve that self-awareness and reflection. So there's a lot of um, virtues and capacities involved in both being a trustworthy person and in being a wise truster. Um, And there's quite a few roadblocks on the way. You know, some people have their views uh, massively uh, uh, seconded so like agreed on wherever they go echoed Mm. back to them right um and they might not be right so some people mm, especially men perhaps in conditions of patriarchy are overly self-confident some other people are under self-confident about what they can do what their competences are what their capacities is Mm. so you can have distortions in in both ways and some of those distortions can be sort of almost politically shaped and structured so i kind of occasionally want to tell politicians um, (laughs) who we might really worry about their trustworthiness in general but sometimes dang they think they know things and they don't so If they were trustworthy, it's Mm. not that they would have to know. They would have to start listening. Learning. Learning. And saying, I actually don't know the answer to that question, perhaps, when they don't. That would be a great first starting point. Yeah. And that's something that's very important right now is because there's a lot of erosion of trust between, you know, um, people in the general population and governments around the world. And I find it interesting that, you know, 
it's only getting worse in terms of our trusting of governments to do certain things. And I guess that's where the domains come in, is that perhaps governments, um, you know, say or purport to that, that, that they can actually be competent and trustworthy in a certain area when perhaps they're not? Um, I think that's definitely part of it. People want to claim the language of being trustworthy, right? Because, you know, that's a great thing, we think. Yeah. Actually, it's interesting, though, because thieves can be trustworthy with respect to each other. So it's actually mm. the goodness of that thing depends on what you're going to use it uh, for, right? Um, but I think something else has gone wrong, too. I would actually really like politicians to start talking about their values and their big picture social value position. Mm. Some people do this, but increasingly not, right? Yeah. Why do I say this? Because should you introduce some policy five years down the track, well, what's your economic modelling about that policy? What's the world going to be like? It could change, mm. right? And if you say this person said they would never have a carbon tax and now they have one completely untrustworthy, complete liar. You haven't allowed anyone discretion to change yeah. positions as the situation evolves. Mm. So in a way, we're actually, and that's a failure of trust, right? When we trust, we'll let someone have discretion. Mm -hmm. So I think if we had a clear value position available, we might be more willing to allow our parliamentarians' discretion as to how they instantiate those values once we signed on to that evaluative agenda. Mm. But nobody wants to talk about values. And is that because they don't have any? <laughs> That's a really sceptical hypothesis. But, you know, sometimes it is like, which policy this week is going to get the most voters? Well, that's mm. not a way of having and expressing a commitment to a set of values. That's a way of responding immediately to political pressure, to polls and so on. Mm. And you would assume that values are really quite unchangeable. Like they wouldn't be they wouldn't really change that much over time that one person who says, you know, these are my values, my personal and professional values, you would assume then that they would have some level of consistency that you could be able to trust. That's right. And the implementation of those might be situationally dependent, subject to new knowledge. And of course, values do change over time. Sometimes we experience almost conversion uh, experiences. So you, you can read some uh, autobiographical writings by people who started out, for example, as white supremacists and came to think rightly mm. <laughs> that their values were deeply, deeply erroneous. So ch change happens. Yeah. Uh, change happens. And that can be a good thing. But yeah. they are more stable and undergird whole ways of approaching problems rather than just saying, oh, in the next election, I'm going to uh, repeal the carbon tax or I'm going to do some very specific thing. Mm, mm. It's a really great point because, you know, there's so much that changes in politics and it's a very fast-moving domain yeah. that it does, it does really need that, um, I guess, certainty and constancy of values that, you know, provides some satisfaction I guess, from people. And can make you feel, I can sign up with this uh, political group yeah. because I understand their, you know, 
core, not agenda, because mm. we want to say it, we keep wanting to use this word agenda, but I understand their their the evaluative lens through which they will a, approach a changing world and try and deliver policies and so on that reflect those core values. Mm. And I just find it sometimes really disappointing that we're not getting enough of that evaluative talk. Um, and maybe. I guess commitment to them. Like when you say these are the values and this party signs on to these values, then you need to stick with them. Yes, that's right. And if you're getting some bad poll response, then you go back and explain what those values are, how they're implicated in this situation. And so effectively you allow some things to blow you around, that yep. is to say to move you, the specific changing circumstances, mm. but other things you don't, right? Yeah. The things that are trying to push you away from the evaluative outlook. So mm. I find, I, th- I think it would be better actually if we talk about politicians breaking their promises if we didn't ask them for the kind of very specific promises that they are later able to be charged with breaking. Because mm. um, sometimes it's a bad thing because breaking the promise means moving away from the value. But sometimes it's just a recognition of the changing circumstances. Yes, and it would be nice to see that kind of pragmatism and openness about, well, actually the situation did change and communicating that change. Yes. Not just, you know, denying that you've changed it when really you have. Absolutely. It's <laughs> not that productive at all. Uh, but, yeah, Absolutely. You know, yeah. why have you changed? And if, if there's a good reason to change, communicate that reason. Mm. And if it was just, ooh, I got a little frightened by some opinion polls or the other side was lobbing hand grenades at me, um, which that's another topic. But yes. civility in the Australian Parliament as compared to the New Zealand Parliament, for example. Wow. <laughs> yeah, right. That's, that is a very interesting thing. And I wonder about that that's probably a whole other topic I think it is (laughs) yeah so we'll have to leave that but it it seems very interesting I want to talk about um how we because we're going to get to wise trust yes and talk about that in some more detail but before we get to wise trust I think we need to explore justified trust and what that really means and well what does that mean I think it is it it means your trust is not rationally criticizable and I think whether your trust is ra- not rationally criticisable, so we can't go like, you know, you made a mistake, see you're being irrational here, yeah. is a function of a complex set of factors. And that means I'm against a view that's been quite dominant. And that's the view that says you're justified in trusting if, but also only if, you are justified in believing that the other person is trustworthy. And I think mm. that's wrong because I think there's this thing um, called therapeutic trust in the philosophical literature where you're trying to bootstrap the justification for your trust into existence in virtue of doing the trust in the first place. Yeah, And, you know, parents do this. It's part of teenager wrangling, right? Mm. Your kids let you down three times. <laughs> Let's take a bit. Is it actually reasonable for me to believe that this time, somehow miraculously, <laughs> she won't let me down again? Yeah. You know, she won't have that party or like purchase all those in game thingies yeah, and yeah. leave me with a very big bill. Um, 
But sometimes when you persistently continue to trust and you communicate that, mm. it can make it the case that the person becomes trustworthy. And yet you weren't justified in believing that they were trustworthy. But I want to say you can be justified in this having this optimism about their capacity to respond to the ways in which you're counting on them. Mm. So I think this bootstrapping phenomenon suggests justified trust isn't just a matter of belief. Yep. But I also think, and this is quite intuitive, that there's lots of situational factors that shape whether our trust is justified. Like we live in networks of trust. You know, we've just been focusing about two people or two groups of people. But those individuals or groups are situated in a social context. And that goes on to make up climates of trust. And mm. fascinatingly, sometimes I can trust someone precisely because someone else is distrusting that person. Huh? Doctors, yeah. think about it. You know, yeah, I yeah. can trust my doctor, right? Which is yeah. great. I do trust my doctor. Well, it's, it's very wonderful. important to have a therapeutic relationship with trust because it just wouldn't happen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But that's made possible by various institutional structures, including credentialing, um, certification, ongoing professional development training and all these kinds of things mm. that are operating in the background. So we've got a lot of complex factors that can go into determining whether your trust is is rational or not. Um, yeah, and it is interesting that you, you can reverse engineer someone to become trustworthy. You can with good institutional design and with... Um, Good interpersonal responses, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we want to be optimistic, but not too, too optimistic. optimistic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, does what is really the key element in being able to trust wisely? Because that's probably, you know, an aspiration many people would have. Yeah. You want the trust that you're giving to actually be warranted yeah. to um, have a good outcome. Um, and that's why you need to have a certain level of optimism. Yeah. But what are the kind of key elements of wise trust? Yeah. If I was able to distill them and mm. put them in some rules, you know, like the eight easy steps, yeah, yeah. Um, we would have, I would have like a phenomenal bestseller, bestseller yeah. absolutely phenomenal bestseller. And maybe I should tell you this anecdote yeah. just in order for the listener to be uh, appropriately sceptically situated with respect to um, what I will say after it. Mm. I remember this really clearly. I was four. And it was my first day in kindergarten and this girl came up, said, close your eyes, hold out your hand and I'll give you something nice. And she grabbed my wrist and twisted it opposite each other. It was called a Chinese burn, right? Oh. And then the next day, or maybe it was the next week, time's a bit fuzzy, she came up to me again and she said, close your eyes, hold out your hand and I'll give you something nice. And I said, you said that yesterday and you didn't. Yeah. And she said, yeah, I know, but I will this time. <laughs> and she did the same thing again. Oh. And I know this went through three iterations. Okay, yeah. so my younger self was not wise. <laughs> but how many times yeah. is too many? Mm. And if you wanted to say, you know, there's that adage, fool me once, shame on me, fool, sorry, shame, shame on, on you, me. fool mm. me twice, shame on me, right? And that's just like you get one chance. Mm. I don't think that's wise. Mm. 
my younger self probably gave this person about four chances. Maybe I was particularly greedy for treats and nice things to come into my head. I don't know. I can't reconstruct the reasoning. So you can't give a rule. But what you can do is start to think about where trust relations are going to be vulnerable and where they're capable of being repaired. So you can think about how to enter into good trust relations, Mm. how to maintain them, and how it is you exit from them when they're really profoundly not working. Mm. So a simple rule I can't give you. You know, who knows how many times it can be reasonable to be let down by someone. But I can tell you things about start to pay attention to the ways in which people communicate their trustworthiness to you. Mm. And if in doubt, be explicit about communicating the trust you're putting in other people. Mm. Because sometimes we don't and we feel let down. And the other person is like, how was I supposed to know? Yeah, And if that's the case, then that's a failure of the one who's trusting, not of the one trusted. So own the failures interactively between both sides of the relationship Mm. in terms of entering. So do you want me to say something about maintaining? Um, Yeah, no, because I want to talk about the idea of maintaining it. There's a a way of, I guess, adapting your trust relationships. So when you discover you can't trust someone in a certain domain, perhaps there's a way that you can still maintain trust by altering what domains you will trust in. And I think that's important because that stops the burn down the house in the face of a single betrayal Mm. because, you know, we do let each other down. We're finite. Um, We make mistakes. (laughs) And exactly. so this is where, like, trust is going to connect to forgiveness mm. in the literature, right? Yeah. So I think recognising that and then recognising also that there's all the space between optimism and pessimism, including hope, including caution. Mm. So you don't necessarily have to put them in the, I'm trusting you, I'm not trusting you. For some of the things about maintaining trust relations, you know, I think we have to be open to being surprised. And that's something that a philosopher called Annette Beyer um, Mm. wrote about, that if we're trusting, we're giving people discretionary powers. And, you know, this comes back to politicians too. Um, So we can't immediately go, what? You let me down. You know, maybe this was actually a creative way of meeting expectations and you could have a conversation with the person about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Annette Bayer, you mentioned her. She's a really impressive philosopher who's now no longer with us. Yes. But she was really important in this area of trust. And I know, you know, has influenced your work, hasn't she? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and she's a New Zealander also. Ah. <laughs> What well, is whatever this? that is, is worth. <laughs> but a New Zealand is very trustworthy. Perhaps we are very trusting. Ah, it's a further question whether we are very trustworthy. But I do actually think, um, and some of the survey work isn't helpful. They ask a vague question like, can most people be trusted? Well, that's going to track your mood. It's like, mm. can most people be trusted with respect to what in which domain? So I'm a bit iffy about this. But nonetheless, yeah. um, New Zealand, you know, Denmark, Um, Iceland, we score high on that scale, higher than Australia, way higher than the US, way 
higher than the UK. And maybe that's telling us something about a kind of social cohesion. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to know what that's tracking exactly. But Well, you do say, given you said there's affect involved and, and on the end of trust is optimism and yeah. distrust is pessimism, I mean, does that mean that Australians might be more cynical or pessimistic if we're distrusting? Uh, yes, but actually, and I don't have this data right at my head, but Australia's fairly high up um, in response to these questions as well. But, you know, if you think about some of the countries mm. um, where this question could be asked, places where you've had civil wars, where you have histories of um, very significant violent crime, yeah. gun ownership and so on, you mm. can see that Australia... Um, might comparatively be good. comparatively good. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in the public debate that it can sometimes be a bit cynical. I think. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. Yeah. And should we give in to that? You mm. know, sometimes there's actually a disconnect between how we inhabit the world and what we do and what we say about what we're doing. For mm. me, this is most apparent in thinking about doctors. Like, there's this view, right, that in the 1950s, people really trusted their doctors. And now, you know, we can do Dr. Google. Yes. We trust less. Yes. But yeah. actually, I remember it was my great-grandfather who was like, I don't want to go into hospital. People go into hospital to die. Uh, and actually, that happened quite a bit. And now we choose to have elective procedures. We're engaging with medical support, um, surgery, medicine and so on in a way we didn't then. You know, mm. people are living longer with chronic illnesses precisely because there's these great medicines and we trust our doctors to know which ones are good and which ones will fit for us. Yeah. So we have this discourse about air trust is eroded but then you look at what we're doing and we're not withdrawing in the way that if trust was really eroding we'd withdraw. Yeah. Yeah. But people are withdrawing from the political process mm -hmm. in countries where they're not made to go vote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's a very good point and it will be interesting to follow the American example, yeah. given how extreme things are getting. And obviously that's an element of trust, isn't it? That a lot of people, you know, who have been vocally critical of Donald Trump, for example, don't trust him. Yes, and you shouldn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was something I got from Donald Trump and I made a prediction yeah. um, in terms of sort of thinking about uh, my work on, on trust and trustworthiness. I made a prediction that um, almost all of Trump's political relationships would bust up. Mm. Why? Because narcissism is the enemy of wise trust. Why is this? Because for the narcissist, it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. And so when you trust people to do things for you, you're actually going to be expecting their will to be subsumed under yours mm. if you have this narcissistic tendency. Yeah. And the other person will invariably let you down because they're a person too. They've got lots else going in their life and it can't be all about you. Mm. So I was quite happy <laughs> to see that prediction made during true, the election yeah. campaign come out spectacularly true. So yeah. in terms of, you know, functional virtues, narcissism is the enemy, mm. communication, right, and a recognition of others as fellow human beings with 
power and capacity, but also limitation and flaws are key behind trusting wisely, I think. Mm. And it's a great point that you've made that, you know, other humans have agency and they have goals and sometimes they may conflict or, you know, have a tension between what you're trusting them to do and what they personally would want to do. That's right. Uh, And sometimes that can be a breach of trustworthiness, but sometimes it can indicate that you have actually trusted um, preemptively and without adequate communication mm. um, and asked of somebody and expected by the asking of it, where that might be speech, but it might just be sort of dumping a problem on them, that they will be willing to pick it up. And maybe they're just too tired, <laughs> too overcommitted, mm. or just not good at that sort of thing. Yep. Karen, it's been amazing to talk to you and I think I'm feeling a bit wiser. I hope I can actually enact some of the wisdom that you've provided. And uh, if anyone would like to go to your lecture and get the full picture, because this is uh, just the beginning, we're scratching the surface really, um, you can head on to Karen's lecture. It's on the 23rd of August. So um, that's right during Radiothon, which is why I'm speaking to Karen now. And uh, it starts at 6.50. 15 p.m. and it's in the William McMahon Ball Theatre. Which which building is that in? Is that Arts West? No. Um, I older? don't know. It's one. Of, it's one of the older ones. I yeah. I haven't but, been in that lecture theatre before. I don't. Yeah. Know. But guess what? Fortunately, there's an app for the University of Melbourne, yeah. and I myself will be looking at that app to remember where <laughs> to McMahon where Ball Theatre is. is and proceeding there. And if If I don't get lost using that app, you won't get lost either. Exactly. It is in the Faculty of Arts and that's I'm told it's in that space. So it'll be in one of the arts buildings. You can look it up on their um, webpage anyway and you need to register um, just to make sure that they have enough seats uh, so that you can all fit. Uh, but Karen will be speaking about Wise Trust on the 23rd of August at 6.15. And yeah, congratulations on all the great work you're doing, Karen. And you are really an inspiration to many students, I know, because you're so engaging and passionate about these issues. So thank you. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. That was the wonderful Dr. Karen Jones, who is a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Melbourne. And as you've heard, she writes about trust, uh, emotions and rationality. She teaches uh, about ethics and there's so many um, things one can really learn through philosophy. And I'm sure you have discovered, just as I have, just how practical it is um, for how we live our lives. So never one to say that is in an ivory tower because I think it's actually really relevant. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM. Uh, that's pretty much it for me for today. Um, I want to thank my guests that I've had on, uh, Ben Eltham from New Matilda, who came in to talk about federal politics. Then I had um, the lovely Richard Todd, who is the filmmaker of Dying to Live, and uh, he his film is screening tonight, as I mentioned, um, and that is uh, all about organ and tissue donation and just how important that is for the Australians on the waiting list. And then, of course, I've just been speaking with Karen Jones. She is the Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Melbourne. And uh, I should say, 
we were talking off air about the fact that there's a wonderful um, woman who's just been appointed head of the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies, and I wrote her name down now, I forgot, and it's Margaret Cameron. Yes. yes, and it's so very exciting to have a female philosopher running um, a school such as the Distinguished Shaps at Melbourne University, so another great development. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.